Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and we have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about do we open source for love, for money, or both? Let's get into episode 19. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is the professor of photography of the Tux Digital Network, Wendy, and our extracurricular activity of gaming czar that keeps our pocketbooks empty, Matt. How are you two doing? Fantastic. Nate, I think that's the politest intro you've given me in a few weeks. <laughs> what can I say? Maybe of all I'm time. I'm softening toward you. Yeah, as I said, maybe <laughs> of all time. <laughs> You make the choice to have your pocketbook light. I just point you in the direction that makes you spend the money. That's on you. Wait, I did call you the kingpin of pushing gaming once. The Doctor Strange of gaming. Those are kind of polite. Uh, Knowing your undertow (laughs) on those, probably not. Well, I said Doctor Strange. I didn't necessarily mean a superhero. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, Matt, I understand that you're lightening your load of things. Are we downsizing? Are we we dying? What's going on? No, I'm still very much alive. So, I am downsizing in a very select way. So... I've been going through and pricing out a bunch of my physical games. Some of them I've played, others I haven't, others I've been sitting for years. And it's just one of those things. Some of these games, I got rid of the systems many, many times ago. So they're not doing me any good. There are people that would probably like to experience these these games that I have, uh, some of them sitting around for quite a long time. So they're not doing me any good, but they might do a collector good or you know somebody else besides me. It's been ironic doing some price checking on some of these things because game collecting in that realm, I've been so out of that it's interesting when you plug some of these games into like eBay and see what the prices are. You're like, huh, I'm staring at this used game with a sticker price that I bought it for of $12.99. eBay recommended buy it now price, $230. Okay. <laughs> that is crazy go nuts right there. Crazy. That's a good investment. Physical games for people who like to collect or play them on the original systems that they were originally intended for and they have that original experience, kind of like what you like to do with a lot of the retro stuff, Nate, which makes sense. You know, it's why you have an Amiga still because you want to play those Amiga games. Yes. And emulation, while cool, still has its imperfections and isn't quite there and, you know, all the technical stuff that goes with it and doesn't quite have the same feel. There are imperfections in the original hardware too, so... You're just swapping one for another. I'm not saying there <laughs> isn't, but the original experience is different on the original hardware. Oh, sure. Than playing on an emulated piece of hardware. Right. There's a certain level of expected frustration and a certain flavor of frustration that you're going to experience on the old hardware. Yes, exactly. A lot of these games, like one I have is uh, Sukaden 5. I played it on PS2. They haven't put out a new Sukuden game in 17 years. That was the last game they put out. Checked it on eBay. Goes for about $180. I paid $20 for it back when I bought it. <laughs> so played it, beat it, played it on PS2, had the original experience. I had a backwards compatible PS3, paid it on PS3. I've experienced it. So now it's time for other people to experience it, that kind of stuff and right. lighten my load a bit, as it were, as far as some of these games that I'm not doing anything with. That makes sense. I understand that. It's still strange to hear you say that you're getting rid of games because you are this 
massive game collector, not only physically, but digitally. And I guess this is one of the positive things to say for physical media. If at a certain time, games get to a point where collectors are wanting them, so their value is going up way more than even the original price of the game, you kind of have a way of if you need some extra money, you can sell it. If you don't really want the games anymore, you can get more out of them later. It's just weird to still hear you say that you are selling games, though. <laughs> yeah, it is very weird. <laughs> it does happen from time to time. Like I said, it, for me, it's more they're not doing me any good. Let somebody else experience them. It's like, yeah, there's a financial component to it. I can't say that there isn't. But on the same note, it's not like the primary motivator. It's one of those, like we've talked about before, you're sitting on a shelf. I haven't touched you in six years or, you know, whatever. Insert amount of time here and it's, you gotta go. Time to go. Somebody else will find some enjoyment out of playing you on whatever console you were originally developed for. That's kind of where I'm at right now with when it comes to games and stuff. So I'm trying to dwindle down to the hardware that I actually have for the most part. Maybe a, a few games are going to be the exception to that, but those are just more like personal attachment type games that really don't have necessarily monetary value, but they got like personal values. So. You know, sometimes the things that have low monetary value are the ones that you actually value the most because it came at a certain time or whatever. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. So while I'm getting rid of things, Wendy, you're having fun by adding things to your workflow? Or I should say dark table is? Yeah, kind of, sort of. If you haven't checked out the form, you really should. It's a fun place to be. There's a running thread called Fun with Darktable, and there's some great pictures on there from different members of the community. If you're taking pictures, even if it's just taking them from a RAW to a JPEG or PNG file, it's a great place to come share your pictures with other members of the Linux community. And the other thing that I found this week was a comment on my Mastodon page by someone who I get to talk to pretty frequently, Chris, member of the community, follows me on Mastodon. And he asked if I heard that there is a 4.0 release coming out for Darktable, which I hadn't. I hadn't been paying attention to any of that stuff. You can't get it directly from their website yet, but you can get it from the GitHub if you are just ready to go and wanting to try out Darktable. They are looking for people to help with the manual. So if you want to get involved with Darktable, that would be a good way to do it as they're getting ready for this 4.0 release. And it really looks like there are some awesome upgrades coming to 4.0. So they're doing some really cool things with color and exposure. And that comes to where you can define and save a target color or exposure with a color picker tool. And so if you have a consistent lighting across all of those images, in saving that, you can quickly apply that across a batch processing. A lot of the changes that they made in the past have made it look cleaner, a little bit more usable. And some of the UI modules that are getting touched up, fixed, reworked are the channel mixer in RGB, the exposure module, the color calibration module. Of course, that one would be getting a UI overhaul with some of the advanced settings or the ability to save like they are doing in the one that I mentioned before. So some really cool additions to Darktable. It's not out, like I said before, for you to get directly from their website or to pull from your repo, 
But if you want to test it out, it is available from GitHub. Have you tried it or do you plan on trying it soon? I'm probably going to wait until I can just pull the package from my repo or off their website. It's not that I don't want to try out the new features. It's that I do have some images that need to be worked on and I don't want to worry about trying to get it installed, which I mean, really, it's not the hard to get it installed pulling it from GitHub, but it's more I don't want to deal with any possible bugs at this point, especially where it's not out on official release, where I do have some images that I need to get done and out of the way. So maybe once those are finished, I'll get it done. And if not, I'll just wait for the official release. I think that makes sense. Sometimes, at least for me, unless if there's like an app image or something really easy, I can like test it out with. I don't want to screw up things that are actually working properly because obviously Darktable is something you rely on on a regular basis. So you don't want to mess with that just to try out something new and then lose productivity for the whole reason you have computers to begin with. It's probably a fine balance how involved it can be in the development of a project versus how much you rely on a project, I suppose. Yes, it's a little bit of a give and take. And if there was an option to throw it on here as an app image or a flat pack, I might go ahead and do that because it wouldn't mess with or interfere with the working version that I have, the stable version that I have on this system right now. So it'd be like, yay, I get to play with it. But here is this version that I know I can always jump back to and finish getting the things done that I need to get done. That is one of the reasons, one of the values I have found in some of these universal packaging options. I can have two different versions on the same system and play with them both, which is really, really cool. And that currently isn't an option yet. I suppose there might be like an archive atar gz file you could probably... Put on a user directory of like a different user or something like that. You could probably execute it, I suppose. Maybe. Just a thought. Possibly. I've only got one user on this system. It's not the highest and best use of your time, for sure. It's a consideration. One way to be able to play with it. Yeah. It's not a way that I do it because sometimes those tar.gz's just don't work for me or there's other frustrations that come along with it. Sometimes the script inserts something into my menu and then it messes me up later. Ultimately, you can undo it, but you know, just time spent. Yeah, sometimes you just don't want to spend the time, you know? And in this case right now, I'm still on the... Not only do I not want to spend the time... I really can't spend the time. There's other stuff still going on. I know school's over, but things have not slowed down in the least bit. I haven't even started filming the stuff that I want to for our robotics team. I need to get on that and go get some stuff picked up from our leader and get that going. So yeah, I don't want to deal with any current packages getting messed up, having to uninstall, make sure all of that's pulled out. I don't really want to deal with it. I just want to keep the one that's working, watch the development of 4.0, and I will be watching for when it officially drops. When I see that, of course, I will let you all know so you can go check it out because they are still doing some awesome stuff, some great development. It hasn't slowed down on this project at all. It just keeps getting better and better. And you can still cheer from the sidelines. You talk about it, get people excited about it. So it's not like you're not helping, you know, just to pat you on the back a little bit there, Wendy. Doing my part in a little way. You actually got to have a ton of fun in real life, me. And that was a trip to Southeast Linux Fest. I am super jealous. How did it go? Who did you meet? It was a lot of fun. A lot more fun than I anticipated. 
Now, I don't mean to say this condescendingly, but because I always make fun of myself, like always, I say I went to a nerd fest. Like to people who don't understand, I'm going to a Southeast Linux festival. What's that? Okay, it's a nerd fest. Oh, okay. And then you're done with the conversation. Now, I used that term at Southeast Linux Fest, and I was admonished a little bit, saying we're not nerds, we're geeks. I said, okay, well, all geeks fall into the subset of nerd, but not all nerds are necessarily geeks. And that became another argument, not like a hostile argument, but, you know, like a fun banter argument. So I just decided to back off and say, you know, I'm just not going to tread on this. I'll never call it a nerd fest again. Anyway, so when I was at this nerd fest, I met a lot of e-friends and turned them into IRL friends or in real life, for those that don't know what IRL means. I only recently learned. That's why I'm saying that. And so the people who I've seen like on the after shows of like Destination Linux or read their chat names in, in the like an IRC or something, people like Chris DeLuca, who's, you know, really loud and obnoxious. He was there. I met Noah Chalaya in real life. One, he has a lot more energy than is captured on camera, if that makes any sense. Even met his wife, who's obviously a saint. In the Destination Linux forum, you see Mr. McBride. I met him in real life. Super nice guy. Real nice, in fact. Leviticus, who's been a part of the Linux Saloon community for a long time, and you know he's been around other Tux Digital shows as well. I met him in real life. I didn't know what he sounded like or what he looked like, because you just see his name. I don't know if you know who Thomas is from Draugr OS. I met him in real life. He lives about an hour away from where it is. Mark Ulmer, who, or Ulmer, Ulmer? Sorry, Mark. He was there as well. He has an analytics users group that he is a part of and talks about that. He gave a talk there as well. So I met him, super nice guy. And uh, Linux Ninja, I'm sure you've seen him around Linux Ninja. He's actually a real person. He does have a face mask, just like you see in his avatar, but he doesn't wear it all the time. Super nice people. Also, the maintainer for, one of the maintainers for Lubuntu, um, his name slips my mind right now. Anyway, he actually works for uh, AltaSpeed as well, and he was out there. I met a lot of great people. It was a lot of fun. I attended nine talks, so I wasn't just you know sitting out in the lobby and chatting up everybody around me. A lot of great talks. I really enjoyed them. I'm not going to talk about all of them, obviously, because we actually have a show to do. But there were some really neat things like how to set up a software-defined radio in Linux that I thought was super cool. You know, some talks about like the future of Linux or, you know, Mark Elmer, his talk was on, you know, did you bring a Windows laptop to a Linux conference and gave some suggestions like what other Linux distributions you can use or whatnot. It was a fun talk. I realized after going to this event and listening to people talk and do problem solving, I was probably at the, no, without a doubt, the bell curve of knowledge and intelligence. I was definitely on the lower end of that bell curve because people were talking about things, problem solving through all kinds of technical issues. I was lost in the sauce. So it gives me a little bit, should I really be on a podcast talking about technology when I really don't know that much compared to you? Anyway, Noah Chai gave a good talk about entering the matrix, about, you know, matrix, the chat client, chat protocol, and how he uses it. I realize I'm barely scratching the surface of all the things you can do with matrix. And now we just use it for our show here, you know, our group room that we can prepare things and whatnot. The way he uses it is really pretty amazing. So all in all, I thought it was a great experience. Uh, very importantly... There was a SUSE booth there, so I got some fun things. I had like, I get this, a giveaway thing, the free tchotchkes or whatever, that the swag, this is on the table. It's a Lego chameleon, not real Lego, like some tiny Legos. And so I was really excited about that. Of course, I got that. That's perfect for you. It is. Yes, yes absolutely perfect. And I have that. I'll, I'll probably put that together here at some point in time. My kids are chomping on the bit to do it. One of the SUSE guys, he gave a talk about Rancher desktop. So if you want to run Rancher, you can actually, there's a way to do everything within the desktop of your machine and then transfer to an actual Rancher system. A little bit over my head, but still a very cool thing nonetheless. It's neat to see how SUSE does pull out emphasis on the desktop, not in the same way, I would say, as Ubuntu or maybe even Red Hat necessarily, but they do put a lot of emphasis on it. And it was actually really neat where their emphasis is. All in all, I thought it was a great experience. 
It was like almost a 12-hour drive there and back. Was it worth it? Yes, yes, it was worth it. I would gladly do it again. I think I will submit to do a talk next time to see if, if it would get accepted. But I definitely had a great time. It was my first Linux conference. It was great because it wasn't too busy. It wasn't a lot of people there. I guess the set attendance was like down by 40% or something like that. Half-ish. Two years of not having it in person and then now doing it in person. It was interesting to hear how like a lot of people mention how they're tired of the online. They want to actually meet people. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, I know I do a lot of online stuff, obviously, with Linux Saloon and so forth. But there's something kind of special about actually being there with people, getting to know them for real, even just seeing the hardware they use or actually seeing their mannerisms. But you know, seeing people like, you know, let their hair down a little bit and just kind of be relaxed in themselves and not, you know, behind camera. It was a neat experience for sure. Easier to be able to just hang out and not have this computer, this screen in front of you. And you've got so many other distractions going on when you're on Jitsi or the post show or whatnot. You know, like for me, my kids are running around, husband's asking mm -hmm. me things, other things are happening. I'm working on projects. And in this, you're in one room situation, you're all together. The focus is more on getting to know each other and the conversations you're having without some of those outside distractions. I'm super jealous you got to go. That sounds like a ton of fun. Glad you got to meet some people. And next year, I bet you'll be even that much more excited. You've done it once. You know how it works. Yeah, I was a little bit lost there when I first got there. Like, I didn't know, what do you do? You just don't understand like the rhythm of things and whatnot. It'll be nice to understand more. And then also even going to other talks, I guess there's a other, I should say other events. I guess there's one in Ohio as well sometime like toward the end of the year, figure out that one too. And just to attend, not necessarily to, to do a talk at this point, but just to attend. Nate being a people person, now there is something that I didn't expect. I can be a people person. On screen, yes. <laughs> in all fairness, you are correct. I did have to withdraw a few times because I can only handle so much people. So I like went back to my room and kind of like disappeared for an hour or so. And then I came back. That's, I did miss a couple talks for that reason. I'd like reboot. But that's a, that's a, a bug or feature in, in my uh, personality software. That's the joy of being an introvert at an extrovert event. The joy is going away or having the excuse. I mean, I'll take both. <laughs> the joy is, quote unquote, the joy is needing to step away to recharge. There are those people that they get their batteries recharged by being around others. And there are those of us that we need to go away and be by ourselves for a little bit in order to recharge the batteries. Right. Oh, I just remembered Simon Quigley. That's the guy who I met also. Real nice young kid. Uh, he's like 22 years old. And he talked about like back when he was a kid. And I thought, well, you kind of are. I was nice. I was nice. <laughs> In the realm of us, yes. Right. When, but, like, yeah, when you're 22, yeah, you feel like you're, you know, older. But when you're in your 40s, all of a sudden, 22 seems pretty young. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. 
DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Related to one of the talks that I attended at Southeast Linux Fest, there was this idea about open source for love, money, or both. And I thought it was such a great topic. I thought I would bring it up to my two fantastic co-hosts, or I should say one fantastic co-host and Matt here on Linux Out Loud. Open source was started with numerous people, but mostly out of passion, not out of financial drive, which actually most of technology, I would say, was probably started out of passion over drive, arguably, with the work of Linus Torvalds even saying in the beginning, saying it'll never be as professional as the GNU project or whatever. Here's my code and threw it out there. And then it grew from there. It became the, you know, the number one operating system in the world, essentially. We've had trouble over the years with different projects, like having the heart bleed with the OpenSSL, basically because there's like one dude working on OpenSSL, not getting any funding for it, and then issues arose in it. There was a the log4js, I think that's what it was called, issue not too long ago, where someone sabotaged your own code because of the commercial interests. And you have companies that put a lot of money and effort into open source because they have commercial interests. For some people, it's both. So the question is long-term, do you see the passion of open source waning, the love of it waning because of the financial motivations that essentially don't care about the passion? Or is there going to be some kind of a balance that has to be struck between corporate responsibility and, and the individual passions? I'm curious to see, I mean, is this model of open source going to exist for the long term based on how things have trickled down over the last several years, let's say decades. I think it has to somewhere strike a balance. And we're still in the stages where that's coming up, mostly because it is in these more recent years that you have these major corporations taking these open source projects and making a lot of money on them. Now, we've talked multiple times throughout the course of this show, whether it was as DLN Extend or as Linux Out Loud, where we know none of us are opposed to making money with Linux, right? Everybody has to eat. That's ground level. We're all cool with that. The issue comes in with, like you were talking about, you've got one developer that's working on this project and these major corporations are making money off of that, but not helping financially with the development of that tool. And for one, I don't understand why you would do that, right? If your business relies on having this piece of open source software, it makes sense to me just as a logical standpoint to want to get back to it so that project continues. Now, whether that's coming in financially helping them out so that they can have the servers, the time, whatever, in order to make that happen. And for companies, that's probably the best way to do it or whatnot. Now, for me, I would say in my personal life that Linux is a bit of both. 
I use Linux for fun. I enjoy Linux. I enjoy the community around them. I enjoy being able to give back myself. But as you know, I have all made money off of Linux. I have used open source tools in order to run a business and provide income for my family. If you have always developers and no funding coming in, we already would have crashed. But you've talked about the fact that there are some companies that step up. Now, I think as the outside looking in, right, if we are doing a big overview of which companies are doing all of the taking and which companies are taking and giving back, it's kind of one of those situations that it's an eye-opener. I like the way this company is doing things, and so I want to support them with my business because they are ensuring a company gives back. You talked about Noah earlier, and I think he is a great example of this, where he runs his company based on open source software and helping other companies run on open source software. And he walks in and yeah, he charges them for his time, his employees' time in setting all of that up. But there is a budget accounted into the cost that he's charging this other company in order to give back to the projects that make his business work and are making this other business work. So those companies that he is working with aren't directly contributing, but he is making sure through the way he's doing fees, just because you can use this project for free doesn't mean you're getting it for free because we want to have something built in in order to give back to them to keep them running. So both of us are able to function long term. And I really, really like the outlook of using open source not only as a passion, but as a moneymaker in that way. It makes sense to me. Definitely agree with what you're saying as far as the time and money and all the other stuff. I think my problem with some of this is, Nate, you had mentioned, you know, kind of in the pre-show about like the heart bleed stuff. You know, you have this one guy making a passion project with a, open the SSL. Then you have these multi-billion dollar companies like Google and, you know, Oracle and all these other companies that rely on it. Like basically it becomes a backbone of the internet. Basically everybody. But they don't support the backbone. That is just bad, not just from a business perspective, like, oh, we're just going to take this and use it. That's fine. That's that's the whole open source model. But when you don't support it, be it with code or financially or whatever, so that either the developer can work on it or you're going to pay another developer to help that developer work on it. Either way, you're being a bad citizen in helping support the overall ecosystem. That's where I tend to take issue. And I'm very much in the same boat with, I'm going to pay for the stuff that I use, obviously. Like that's just always been something I've always advocated for. But I think a lot of these companies, they just think these passion projects will just people constantly keep turning them out as passion projects. And, you know, oh, well, there's always somebody replaceable. That's not a great mentality to have. <laughs> these companies can contribute back by actually A, being helpful, which a portion of them are, you know, by contributing code or testing or whatever. But there is a financial component that these companies, as good citizens, should have a responsibility to give back to in some way, shape, or form, be it a foundation, a, you know, pay a developer, pay the developer, however you want to go about that. 
And I don't think it's wrong for these people who have invested their time for these, you know, these applications and that stuff or services, whatever, these open source projects that people take and use that they should be compensated in some way, shape or form for their time and effort to make that piece of software available to other people. One or two examples that I see as good examples of industries and stuff actually getting behind projects and actually helping propel them forward is things like Blender. A lot of companies getting behind Blender. I know Ubisoft, has, which is a game company, has helped redesign Blender and make it more usable and approachable for people. And it, they took out they took out a lot of the stuff that were barriers because Ubisoft is using Blender within their own studios now, but they also contribute back financially, which I think is a big thing. Yes, you're contributing to a foundation, but you're also contributing to the foundation that helps build that piece of software that in the long term helps you. <laughs> you also see it with projects like OBS where you see various gaming entities, you know, be it publishers, developers, or streaming services, etc., taking and giving back to OBS in code or money or whatever so that the developer can actually develop the software. It's a novel idea. Developers not having to worry about where their next meal comes from is kind of a burden lifted off them that they don't have to worry about that anymore. And they can worry about if they want to spend 100 hours in a week developing a piece of software, they can without having to worry about, hey, am I going to be eating fries or am I going to be eating a steak, you know, or am I just not going to be eating? <laughs> right. You can't always replace a developer like sometimes companies think you can. And it's part of the reason why forks don't always work. Especially if you have a project that's been around for a long time, you end up with lots and lots of code in it. And I'm not speaking of somebody who writes code because I don't. Yeah, I've played around with some Python and our robot, but that has nothing to do with actually writing a usable application. And Brandon, who is on the network, the pseudo show, has mentioned this multiple times, especially when we're talking on the back end of one of the reasons why these forks fail or why if something is a passion project and it's no longer sustainable for that developer, they just completely die because to jump into something and then know exactly where things are and how to work it and where to fix things is extremely difficult. It takes a lot of extra work for somebody to jump into the shoes of somebody who's been working on it from the beginning or for many, many years. Right. And we have to keep that in mind too when these are projects that we rely on and we need them to be funded. Yeah, it may be a passion project, but replacing them isn't necessarily an option if they have to step away because they're not getting what they need to live or they just plan and simply get burnt out. It's no longer a passion anymore. And probably burnt out is a better outcome than like what happened with that log4j where people become so frustrated that they actually sabotage their own software to get like whatever reason, whatever the motivations are. And it makes you kind of think, makes you wonder, put in perspective, like how do we as a open source community ensures these important projects these core projects, a lot of things are relying upon, and there's tons of them. It'd be hard for me to like dig through and figure it all out. But how do we ensure that all those things get funded? Those people who are working on it are adequately funded. I know that there are commercial open source companies you know, like SUSE, Red Hat, Canonical that make it a point to employ a lot of these core people, at least they have historically. Obviously, they have limitations too. They're good open source citizens. They're doing a lot there. 
But, you know, companies that are not good open source citizens, they aren't putting the same kind of funds into the open source community, but they are making lots of money off of it. I don't think there's any way you can legally push responsibility and you can probably pressure companies or do like social methods of encouraging companies who are making lots of money off of helping to fund these things. But I don't know that there is a way, a license you can write or anything of that sort that will get the desired result. And this is just a really tough problem that it's going to take a long time to solve, I think. It's the positive and negative, right? It is so awesome that this stuff is open source, that for the most part, it is free, as in you don't have to pay for it to use it. But the downside of that, it can be used in that way where different companies, different people are taking advantage of the open nature of these projects. And it's one of those things that I think will always happen. We'll never get away from that and definitely be thankful and thank those that are being good open source citizens. It's one of those things that with this freedom, there is potential for people to use it irresponsibly. I thought you were going to go with a Spider-Man reference there. This great power comes great responsibility. And I think that holds true. Sorry, Spider-Man's kind of the thing right now in the house, so... I've seen a lot of Spider-Man. Gotcha. Totally a side tangent, but my youngest wants to be Spider-Man. I'm like, look, I don't know where to find a spider like that to bite you, boy. Maybe we can find one. Let's go to the big city. I've been bitten several times, and uh, the most notable one made me sick for a few days. So I don't think I'm going to go out and purposely get bit. Can't, like, uh, shoot web out of your wrist now or uh, leap tall buildings? Nope, nope. The only thing it did is made me feel like I had the flu and made my tonsils swell up massively. So yeah, hmm. no no magical powers. I can't stick to walls or anything. Nope. Well, you just dashed my hopes. Sorry. And his. <laughs> yeah. You'll get over it, Nate. I'll never get over it. Striking a balance of individual passion with the corporate responsibility of utilizing those passions is going to be a hard balance to strike. The fact is, many corporations, especially the large ones, the bigger they are, really, the greedier they are and the less they actually care about the individual doing a thing. Smaller companies tend to be more responsible. They recognize the assets that people are to a project. But yeah, the, the larger companies don't see that. And in my own experience in corporate America, this is very true. Unfortunately, as soon as an organization gets to the point where people are just a number, a line item on a budget sheet, then they tend to be the less responsible corporations. So I don't know how that's going to be fixed. I don't see it as being fixed easily. I don't actually see it ever really being fixed, but being a constant battle of pushing organizations to be socially responsible for open source assets. Organizations like the Linux Foundation seem like they would be the best position to support developers, especially developers of core functions in the open source world. But I don't know how well they do that, if they're doing that, but they should be. <laughs> Let's never get started on the Linux Foundation. Besides, I will give them credit for paying Linus Torvalds at the <laughs> end of the day. That is the one thing I will give them credit for. They still contribute to the core, just uh, anything beyond that, I wouldn't give them too high praise, honestly. I tend to agree with you, Nate. I think companies need to be called out when they have a very big, not over-reliance, but a strategically important reliance on a piece of open source technology that they are not contributing to in any way, shape, or form, and that they should be called out for. They should be, as much as I don't like the quote-unquote public shaming, but they should be like, hey, you're a big consumer of this. It's only not even socially responsible. It's like you're 
business model relies on this. This is makes financial sense to you supporting it. So I find it weird when companies don't understand that because they view it as, oh, well, we didn't have to pay for it. Well, yeah, you didn't have to pay for it, but if it goes away, then you're going to – that whole stream of income that you're earning might not be there. That line right. item of 50 grand or whatever you might contribute to a project or a person to do that, you might want to add that line item or else uh, you might lose that multi-million dollar stream of income. Exactly. They need to figure out their business cases a whole lot better than they do. I think log for is a great example of that. A lot of people were bitten by that you know, because mm-hmm. they weren't being responsible with their assets. And we saw what happened with that. Unfortunately, it's a very public calling out of those companies. And guess what? Sometimes it's needed though. Again, if these companies were responsible, it wouldn't have been a thing to begin with. And sometimes the uh, squeaky wheel does get the most grease. I don't know if this guy didn't squeak loud enough ahead of time. Who knows? This is why it's good to communicate. When you have a grievance, it's good to communicate. Agreed. Me and Nate disagree all the time, you know, open SUSE and stuff. And you're as squeaky as they come. (laughs) Fix the installer. (laughs) Read the directions. (laughs) Right there in front of you. I shouldn't need to know my SSID in order to actually log into a wireless network, Nate. Just plug in the Ethernet then. Well, problem solved. (laughs) When most laptops nowadays don't even have an Ethernet port, sure. Don't buy a laptop like that. Good luck finding one that isn't like that. (laughs) This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Matt, since you are the czar of extracurricular gaming activities, and I found out you're selling some games, are there any new games that maybe you're exploring at this point, or are you hanging it up? Well, the fact that I'm doing a 24-hour charity stream next week, I would say I'm not hanging it up anytime soon. (laughs) Okay, good. I was a little worried there for a moment. Just kind of worried. No, uh, so this week, I did not get a lot of time to play a lot of video games this week, so I'm just giving the recommendation for the game that I streamed on the weekly GameSphere stream, which was Spellforce 3 Reforced. This is like a a revamp of the original game, kind of a one with all the bugs and fixes and all that stuff just rolled mm. into a newer game. It's a RTS and RPG hybrid, so real-time strategy game on top of RPG hybrid mechanics. So there's a lot of 
base building and that kind of stuff and resource management that you normally get with the typical RTS games like StarCraft and all that kind of stuff. But it has RPG mechanics like you can upgrade every individual unit. They get experience points. You can customize certain heroes and that kind of stuff. So there's very much a balancing act of trying to be two different, entirely different genres of game while still having a focus on story and atmosphere and that kind of stuff. So I played it for about an hour, hour and a half, give or take. And I played it on console, but I do have it on PC as well. I would recommend the PC version just because the RTS hybrid stuff doesn't naturally fit itself well to a controller. However, if you're looking for a game that you only have a console for and you want to try an RTS or the RPG hybrid mechanic kind of interests you, it's not a bad way to go. Like I said, it's just the controls aren't as precise as they could be if it was on a mouse and keyboard. Now, granted, I played on the Xbox Series X. I don't even remember if you can hook up a mouse and keyboard to the new system. I, honestly, I haven't even tried. So I would recommend getting this on if you want DRM free and go to Geo or you can get this on Steam. Take your pick. It's not an uber expensive game. I think right now GOG has it on sale for like 10 bucks. Well, I would say graphically it's a very neat looking game. Although I'm not sure how crazy it would be about walking around that giant tower that has no appropriate railing going around looking at the vastness of the land stretched out before it. But it's a video <laughs> game, so I don't know why I care. Because, you know, if you fall, you can just respawn, right? Yes. What would you say is this game's like best feature? What, what makes it stand out like from other games similar games of this genre there's not a lot of games like it the only other game that would be remotely even remotely like this game would have been disciples liberation which that's not even i can't even really make that comparison because disciples liberation is more of a strategy game as far as elements that are kind of rtse but not like a core component of it so it doesn't rely on base building this game relies on unit management this game relies on also a mix of heroes and loot grinding and grabbing and kind of that diablo 2 kind of mentality so it's very different in that regard so its biggest strength is its uniqueness as far as the genres that it tries to kind of combine as far as like what you're going to get it's, it's typical fantasy kind of tropey stuff in that regard you know magic and all the other fun stuff but as far as what it is, its uniqueness is probably its key selling feature as far as like its blend of genres. Okay, I can see that. The graphics look absolutely fantastic too. Oh yeah, the lighting effects from like the fire and like the fog of war effect and that kind of stuff when like the light pierces through the fog of war and that stuff. It's really, really cool. I do like that. I think you're right when you say it's probably too new for me. I mean, it's only five years old. The original release is 2017. The revamp came out in 2020. Okay, so still. It's 30 years too new for you. Basically at 20. It's 30 years too new for you. <laughs> and it's just the wrong kind of gameplay for me. Nate, remember, you're stuck at Super Nintendo. Yeah, I haven't quite moved up to the Nintendo 64 yet. I really like the Super Nintendo still. However, with that being said, <laughs> while I'm busy adding and subtracting games to uh, my collection of things, Wendy, uh, you seem to have broken certain things on something you already have. Yeah, we are back on my OnePlus 9 this week. I went through the process of Root and Rom, and that was an absolute pain in the rear. And this is probably one of the finickiest unlocked bootloader phones I have ever used in my entire Android existence. So everything was running perfectly fine on Nameless Rom, and I saw that I had an OTA update for it. I'm like, heck yeah, let's just run this. So 
We were out preparing the garden, getting ready to get it planted. Finally, I know we're a little bit late in the season, but it'll be fine. Anyway, so we were out working on stuff in the yard. I had it downloading while we were out there working on some stuff and then came in. It was all downloaded, ran the update, and instead of actually rebooting like it was supposed to, I just get this error screen, which is better than the last time I completely messed it up, which I had nothing that came on the screen at all. It was booting, but it was booting directly into emergency mode and there was nothing on the screen. So I didn't have that this time. I actually was seeing an error and I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. So it's this time again. I went ahead and use the MSM tool. Now I can't use the MSM tool that is for the global version of the device, the one that I have. I'm having to use the one for the India OnePlus 9 Pro, which isn't even the right version of my phone, but it works, right? You can get it from a state where it's not booting into a ROM at all to where it's actually booting into a ROM, but here's the downside. Like it It won't actually work to make phone calls or text messages because the model doesn't match the IMEI. Royal pain in the butt. So I go ahead, get the bootloader re-unlocked, get TeamWin on there so that I can add the stock ROM on there, get it installed into both the A and B partitions. And I'm like, okay, I wanted to try lineage anyway. My phone already had to be white, which I lost a few pictures. Sad, sad, but not the end of the world. They weren't super important ones. So I'm like, okay, I will go ahead and try and install the latest version of Lineage on there. That ends up not working. There's some error that gets thrown in there because I wasn't upgraded to the latest firmware. And I'm like, finally, forget it. I am done. I'm just going to go 100% back stock. After having like multiple problems, I've been working on my phone all day. I even went to town with Magneto without a phone because my phone didn't work. He had his on him. The kids were fine. They could have gotten a hold of us, but I I didn't have my phone with me. I went to town without a phone. I go ahead and get the OTA, an original version of the software in both the A and B partitions I relock the bootloader. I do an upgrade to Android 12 with the OTA. And here's the problem. I have no touch at all. Can't get into the phone. I can get back into bootloader mode, but that's it. Like, yeah, recovery's there, but you can't do anything. Like, literally, you can't do anything other than wipe the phone and stock recovery. Stock recovery is absolutely worthless. I'm stuck and I don't know what to do. And I start doing a little bit more digging. Like, what's going on? I am incredibly frustrated. And apparently, this is a problem for people that need to flash the India version of the MSM tool in order to get it back to somewhat functional, even when you reinstall the proper ROM for this device, there's a flag somewhere that's still ticked that this one's for India and it locks up the phone, will not let you use it. And if I want to go to Lineage anyway, I have to have 12 on there, but I have to have a working 12 so I can go back in and unlock the bootloader, all of that fun stuff. Just, it's a chore. Long story short, 
Somebody else has had that problem. They had posted the fix to XDA where you can get it back to the proper ROM. Even though it says it's flashing India, it's not. It's flashing the global one. Nice work around there. Got my phone onto 12. Did all of the steps in order to get Lineage on there. And now it's working. I've been running Lineage since sometime yesterday afternoon. I still have the same downside of the camera just isn't as good. It doesn't work as good because it doesn't take advantage of all of the backend bits and bobs that the Oxygen camera will. And it's not using both of those camera applications. But Lineage is running fantastic. I wouldn't say my battery is doing great, but it's right after I have reflashed a ROM. So of course there's reinstalling stuff and setting things up and all of that fun stuff. But I have to say Lineage is better than Nameless ROM for one key reason. When it goes ahead and flashes Lineage, it takes away that boot screen that says, hey, your bootloader's unlocked. Do you want to stop right here? Because someone can steal your data. Thanks so much for letting someone know as soon as they turn on my phone. <laughs> so they get rid of that. So that's not right. a problem anymore. It boots normal with the OnePlus and whatnot. Everything's running pretty good. So we'll keep this for a while, see how it works. I have to say that if I was to get another phone this minute, one that I wanted to root and rom, it would not be a OnePlus because, like I said, it's been such a pain to do anything on. You messed up your phone. You had to use Magneto's phone to communicate, essentially, right? Uh-huh. So the one who normally breaks technology is the one that had the working technology and had to rely on him. I'm sure it's a little embarrassment there going for <laughs> you on that one. And then you have actually absolutely sold me on never getting a OnePlus. You're welcome. I'm not saying that they're bad devices. If you're getting a OnePlus and you're not rooting and ROMing it, I think for the most part, it's a really good piece of hardware. It's a good phone. But if your plan is to root and ROM, go somewhere else. Honestly, as bad as it sounds, if you're going to root and ROM, your best bet is probably to go Google phone. (laughs) As bad as that sounds. exactly. The OnePlus devices, if you want a... I'm going to use the term affordable very loosely here. If you want a more top-end spec affordable phone... It relates to Android, then they're great phones. However, mm-hmm. they are not as root and rommable as they once used to be. That used to be one of their biggest selling points. You know, the, right. the original OnePlus, OnePlus 2, OnePlus 3T, those phones specifically were really root and ROM happy. We don't care. Here's the heart. You know, they were the original kind of Pine 64 with Android. Here's a phone, but we don't care what you do. Have fun. That's what they initially sold as. They were developer phones almost. And they kind of got away from that, unfortunately. I think Motorola is not too bad, but they're just not great phones. They make a really nice low mid-range device for the most part. Yes, they do have some high-end phones, but I say that Motorola is pretty budget-friendly. Some of their G-Line, there is a decent community, especially if you buy them unlocked in order to do some root and roaming on them. And we've used Motorola a lot in the past. I would say that it's probably one of the company lines we've had the most around here. And I would, not root and roaming, be fine with buying a OnePlus again, but I bought this device. One of the selling points of this device for me 
was the Fastboot OEM Unlock. And because it was unlocked and I'd had this past experience with other phones that were unlocked that to brick it to get to the point where things wouldn't boot was like almost non-existent because my bootloader was unlocked. All I had to do was get into Fastboot, type in the Fastboot commands and I could be up and running again, no problem. And that just isn't the case anymore. Fastboot isn't as reliable as it used to be. Just trying to get a custom recovery flash in order to get a custom ROM on there is a royal pain in the butt. So one of the reasons why I bought this was to have a higher spec phone that was root and ROMable. And it's been a bit of a disappointment in that department. And I was looking at some of the Google phones Though I was uh, not so sure I wanted one of the latest ones just because they had that new custom chip in it. And I wasn't sure how that was going to affect the overall development. So for the Root and ROM community out there, you probably already know this. But there are easier phones to work with than OnePlus now. Last week, you told us that you had your 3D printer back up and running, Nate. So does that mean the CNC is almost ready to go? Yeah, sure. Uh, no, it's not almost ready to go. It's getting there. I've been printing stuff pretty steadily, except for the time that I was you know, out playing at Southeast Linux Fest. I have a lot of things printed. I have a spreadsheet where I'm keeping track of all this stuff, of course, because why not? There's a 61 total parts I need to print. I have 35 of those printed now. Oops. Oh, I have an update. 36 of those printed now. So that means 25 remaining. And then I have 167 hours total invested, not including the failed prints, which there are a lot printed. And that equates to, at this point, completed parts, 777 grams of plastic that have been extruded in a final form. So yes, many hours of printing, many more to go yet. Just as the show started recording today, my 3D printer started acting a fool again. So I have to straighten out whatever's going on with that once again. So I think the problem is just the amount of the Bowden tube can't handle the stress of the pulling in and out a lot. I think that's what's causing the things to start to fail over time. It has me thinking about like a direct drive system, but I don't know yet. That would be a really cool option. Are you using the Ender Bowden tube or did you upgrade to the Capricorn one? So I actually use the Capricorn. It's a blue tube instead, right? Right. Yeah. That one actually failed almost immediately on me. Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't yeah. had any problems with it, but of course, like life went super crazy sauce right after I did that upgrade. So it hasn't really run too much. I do like the idea of the direct drive. And I've actually looked at some of those. So do you have an eye on a particular one? Or this is just something you're thinking, yeah, I'm probably gonna have to do in order to keep prints running smoothly. I mean, to be fair, you've done a lot of printing, especially as you're preparing for this super large project. And that wears out parts over time, like it can only run for so long before things break down. And with this large amount of prints, both in stuff that was finished and looks great and ready to use and all of the failed stuff, that's a lot of hours printing. And so you just have maybe issues coming up from that long-term steady use of the printer. I think it could be that, the constant steady use. There are ways of like shimming that pneumatic fitting end so it doesn't reduce some of the wobble in it, the part that compresses. I'm going to try using something wedge it locked and see if that changes anything. So I'll get back with you on that when I put the printer back together, uh, which will be sometime today. By next show, I should hopefully be 
have something useful to tell you on that front. Did you also check out the feed? Because I know we talked when I did the upgrades on mine about changing that from the plastic feed to the all metal feed. Is it still the plastic one? It appears that mine's metal. Oh, nice. It came with a metal one because I picked at it and it was, unless if it's a really hard, strange plastic, it appears to be a metal. So that's definitely not the issue there. Yeah, that's not the issue on it, but that's not the fail point. The fail point is actually within within the print head itself. I'm getting there. The rest of the stuff I have printed, I have to print off yet are smaller pieces. I'm hoping fairly soon to get these done. But like right now, this piece right here that I need to print next is like 10 hours of printing. It'll take a while to get through that one. Yeah, a nice longer one. I mean, to be fair, most fun things take forever when it comes to printing. I've also looked at adding a second print head to it because it's one of the modifications that can be done with my Ender Plus is having a dual print head setup, which would Mm. be super, super nice when I'm printing stuff that needs structures. And there are several things that we've printed that need the structures Whereas I can use two different types of filament, one for the main thing that's being printed and the second print head with a water-soluble filament for the structures portion of it. I don't know how well that will actually work if both of them are different temperatures and whatnot. Where it's two separate print heads, it might be all right. I don't know. It does mean replacing the board or adding a daughter board in order to get all of that to work. Kind of one of those options to get two different types of filaments running on one machine. I think it'd also be fun to like print multicolored things as well. Yes. That would be fun. That would be an absolute blast. I watched a review on a printer that could do up to four colors or four different types of filaments. Yes, it was a pretty expensive 3D printer, but it was so cool to watch some of these different things being printed in different colors and how much fun that would be. I am not to the point where I'm willing to spend that much on a 3D printer. I think the one that we have right now is pretty rock solid for what we're using it for, but I agree watching somebody else print in multiple colors was super cool. Loved it. I think a larger printer would be pretty cool too, but I know there's issues with as you go bigger, you have other structural concerns and whatnot. Nonetheless, I still think it'd be very cool. I'll probably have to build one. My larger printer is awesome. The biggest concern I have right now is A, where to put it. So it's still in my kitchen. Yeah, it actually hasn't moved from there. And it's more difficult to get a case built around it. Many of the DIY cases that I'm seeing using some of the IKEA furniture is made for smaller 3D printers. And mine just has such a large enough footprint that that's a little bit more difficult to use some of those same tutorials. So I don't even have that necessarily locked in as to where I'm going for that case yet. So yes, the larger printer is nice. I can print some really nice pieces on it. I can do quite a few individual prints at one time on this print bed. But it does. Like everything, there's positives and negatives right along with it. For sure. And then there's the power requirements and maintenance. All the fun stuff. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under the video, or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Game Sphere, Linux Saloon, and more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcast and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric 
I pause my game to be here shirt. Although in Matt's case, he pauses game only when he had to talk here shirt. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome sort of Linux out loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, Matt. Conversation somewhat on topic, Nate. And have fun doing it, Wendy. Wendy.